Welcome to Misinformation, hosted by Rebecca Jones and produced by Big Mouth Media. This weekly podcast with Florida COVID whistleblower Rebecca Jones dives into the world of disinformation and how it's hurting America and democracy. Now, here she is, Misinformational. Rebecca Jones, and I am joined with Dr. Cindy Banyai here for an episode of Misinformational. And I'm going to go ahead and apologize for being sick. And I sound sick, and I'm not putting on makeup, so I look sick too. But we will push through because the disinformation nation never stops. Cindy. That's right. I was going to say, because you're worth it, everybody. You're worth it. We <laughs> have to. A, keep... a, literally a makeup tagline. <laughs> it probably is. No, but we need to keep on top of the situation here because there's a constant swirl of bullshit that we live in with big moneyed interests that are pushing completely false narratives. We also have foreign adversaries pushing false narratives or setting up and schemes and smear campaigns. And this podcast helps to break through all of that. Yeah, and so if you're joining us late into our season, we've been doing this for a while now. And in the very beginning, we really went over the tools, methods, the kind of psychology behind how this works. We're going to start piecing that, weaving it back in so that you don't have to watch everything. Not that you shouldn't or listen to you it. Should, awesome. You should definitely go back and watch episode one where it breaks down the misinformation versus disinformation because that's really helpful. Yes. And understanding the strategy and the methodology behind it. We did a great episode about Christina Pushaw, who is Ron DeSantis's spokesmonster and you know how she rose up the ranks within Eastern Europe, working for a war criminal and then harassing me and then going to DeSantis. And then she developed the whole rumor thing, or at least mainstreamed it. So there's a lot of stuff that, about how those things go down. We've had case studies in the past, some ones that are completely apolitical that you can listen to without being angry about the politics around it. One involved a Florida teenager who caused a car accident and his hate for TikTok media salvation, which was super bizarre to say the least. Just to show how easy it is actually to set up these kind of online influence campaigns. And it's not just politicians that it's available to. Yeah, and that absolutely. We saw that with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, which was not a inherently political issue, but certainly it was weaponized as such. And of course he paid a whole lot of money to drum up artificial support for himself and condemnation right. of Amber. But at any rate, I was going to say, I wonder if he also paid the people at the Cannes Film Festival to give him a warm welcome when he got there as well. If you look at what was it, Roman Polanski and, and some of the other people, Harvey Weinstein was notorious for doing what he was doing. And no one said anything until finally the, I think it was the Washington Post had the kahunas to make it public. So Hollywood is not exactly known for shoving people out for abuse or molestation. Yeah, for being gross. Yeah. My favorite um, thing, though, about the whole Harvey Weinstein is that there is a, a hot take from Courtney Love, of all people, where she said, it was like, do you give a piece of advice to somebody who's going to be get, getting to be famous? And she's like, just don't go anywhere alone with Harvey Weinstein. Back in the 90s? Oh. Yeah, like early, yeah, late 90s, early 2000s. I, you know what? I actually think, and I'm going to I'm gonna write this down real quick while you're listening to this. I think... I'm going to look more into the Courtney Love, Kurt Cobain. I know it's old school, but I know enough now of how these kinds of character assassination things work to see a lot of those parallels with Courtney Love. Now that, yeah. again, when we talk about this, that doesn't, when we talk about a victim of something, especially of a smear campaign or really anything like we were talking about Andrew Gillum, it doesn't mean that the victim was perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect right. victim unless you're like a bus full of nuns or something like that. It just Even means so. that they were targeted with things that were false to defame their character, usually to achieve a certain end, although sometimes it just seems for, in the case of the royal family, for pleasure. So Courtney Love not, may absolutely be a drunk or a drug addict or whatever it is that people say. And she may not. I know that she is, at least in our culture, blamed for Kurt Cobain's suicide. I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories about Kurt Cobain's suicide. Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll have to go back to old school. That would be a great throwback episode. Yeah, a little more pop culture stuff than politics. But we are going to start politics today. 
So because a lot has been going on and we've been playing catch up for a while now because so much is constantly happening. Mm -hmm. And the last yeah. week we took a deep dive into major developments with the former mayor of Tallahassee, Andrew Gillum, who was also the Democratic nominee for governor in 2018 against DeSantis. If you have not listened to that one, I really would suggest because it's super relevant. We know a lot of you were in Florida, but it also has national implications because people like Lev Parnes were involved, the Proud Boys were involved in yep. the entire Steve Bannon kind of disinformation machine, which we will target yep. in the future episode all by itself. And tomorrow, which will be the day before this episode airs, but it's the day after we're recording, is apparently when Ron DeSantis is going to be announcing his presidential bid. Yeah, I had that as number four on my list. <laughs> Because like most of the country, he's not really a headliner anymore. And he's going to announce and people are like, oh, yeah, he finally did. And then they'll be like, okay, and then move on. I'm sure that he thought for the last several years of after all of the you know, horrible things he's done, that there would be some huge celebratory thing when he announced. And because he's already crashed and burned so badly, most people are going to be like, yeah, next. Wait, we got Tim Scott. It's fine. Yeah, God. Sorry. Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't think they're going to recruit Youngkin to run this round. but People have been I, talking about it. They're talking about it, but I think with him only being in his, what, first year, full year through of Governor Virginia, I think he is the candidate wish list they have for 2028. There's a lot of Republican conversation being like that 2024 is going to be a loss, and it might actually be their best opportunity to rid themselves of Trump permanently. So the Republican Party puts up a very united and strong front. Internally, they squabble as much as Democrats do externally. And I have a lot of Republican friends. And I know this sounds like crazy, but not all of them are evil. But uh, so our first item was actually going to be, and it feels super old, but it's not that old, was the verdict in the E. Jean Carroll case. Because I've continued to see a lot of disinformation pop up about this, particularly from some of the same circles that we talk about a lot. So Roger Stone, which we would call the Bannon Network. And my good friend, Laura Loomer, and some other people talking about how, and the wide interpretations of how that, the facts of that case have been used to push an agenda. So Roger Stone, of course, tweeted out that Trump was found not guilty of rape. True. He wasn't found guilty or not guilty of anything. Because it wasn't a criminal trial. <laughs> who were liberals, including friends of mine, who said that Trump was found guilty of sexual abuse or rape. There was no guilty or not guilty verdict. This was a civil lawsuit. This was right. not in the criminal court. Everybody loves to attack the district attorney of there, but this is a completely separate judicial system. Alan right. Bragg, who is the DA of New York City. Or, criminal. Yeah that there are different courts. He had nothing right. to do with this. This was not a criminal case. This is right. a, this was civil litigation specifically to do with sexual assault. That is correct. And defamation and the, what the jury was asked. And of course the jury questionnaire is out there was whether or not first they had to determine whether or not Donald Trump raped, sexually abused, molested, or violated E. Jean Carroll. And if they found that the preponderance of evidence, which means that the majority of this evidence indicates it's more likely than not she, he did, did he lie about it, which they then have to say yes or no, and did lying about it cause her harm, a loss, income, emotional distress, so on and so forth. But in order to sue someone for defamation in this court, of course, each state's different, but in most states, you have to prove that the thing that was said about you is false. And right. so she had to prove that he did, in fact, do what she said in that dressing room. And the jury did find that, yes, they believe that happened. He was right. found liable for sexual abuse, which was right. the second most severe out of four options that the jury was given to consider. They did consider whether or not he was liable for rape and chose that, no, he was not. But sexual abuse just said, yes, they could mm -hmm. have gone down to more. I think molestation was the next one. And then there was a fourth less severe other than that one. But they found yes on the second most severe. One of the funny things, and it's being taken out of context, but like the Andrew Tate pizza box thing, it's funny. That's been going around there is that the reason they did not find him liable mm -hmm her rape was because she said that he attacked her from behind and that she could not say herself for certain whether or not he penetrated her. And I'm going to go ahead and we should, we'll put a trigger warning at the beginning of this, but I'll say it again with his fingers or his penis. And because she could not say 
whether or not it was a penis or fingers, they could not find him liable for rape. If she had been able to make that distinction, then in all likelihood, given what the jury found, they would have found him liable for rape. So no, he was not found not guilty or guilty for rape. He was right. found to have sexually abused Eugene Carroll in that dressing room. So they said that he did that. Based on the evidence, he did that. He also lied about it. That was the easier part. Once they determined that he did it, anything that he right. said against it was a lie. And obviously it caused her substantial harm, emotional distress to have this done to her and to have him lie about it. And he continued to lie about it the very next day on the- right. That shitty so town hall, yeah. Town hall, I don't really, that's not an appropriate word. Now I will say- no. On that, let's call it the CNN propaganda fest. It was something. <laughs> we could dedicate a whole episode into lessons not learned from 2016 and 2020 by the media. Some of that is the fickleness of the industry. Some of that is the turnover within the industry. And a lot of it is seeing new leadership. I was going to say, some of it is the zeal of, yes. yeah, the leadership at CN, who was just over the moon with Tucker Carlson getting canned, that they thought they could capture a market share. Yeah, they did it for ratings. And from my understanding, it didn't even get close to 2016 ratings. So they sold their soul for nothing. I said before this happened that the only situation in which this would have been even remotely appropriate for CNN to do would be if it was an interview in which they pressed, fact-checked, and refused to back right. down on some of the most atrocious lies. And that is a tall order for any veteran journalist to do with a former president. But of course, they stacked the audience with very supportive Trump people. And it was like watching a video of when the lions and the hyenas are all like devouring like a dead animal or like a baby animal. And it's like screaming and stuff. And you're like, oh my gosh, somebody make it stop. That was, yeah. I didn't watch the whole thing. I couldn't stomach it, but I guess for. So are you trying to say that an audience full of people laughing about an abuse, a sexual abuse victim is like not good TV? It's good TV. That's not the problem. People watch it more than they normally watch CNN. The problem is, and this was stress and this was, one of the points I oddly agreed with CNN's new leadership is that the group of people was reflective of a large part of the American populace. Now, he got a lot of pushback for saying that, but let's be real. He's right. I joined that the night of the verdict, the biggest Twitter spaces that they have every night, which are almost all conservative people. It's like Mario, I forget his last name, and a whole bunch of other people. We get hundreds of thousands of people to tune in. And I'm usually like the token female or the token liberal <laughs> on these things. And so when I joined it, it was weird because most of the men and conservatives who were on there were not actually attacking her as a victim. One of the most common methods that people will use, and this is used against almost all victims when there's a celebrity involved, is dismissing their legitimacy as a victim. Right. So they'll say, oh, you'll hear a lot like, though, this just makes it harder for real victims. So they're saying they're not a real victim, but they're still maintaining the legitimacy of a person who has actually experienced these things and their right to seek justice. That has been a conservative mainstay and a very popular and effective tactic at winning people over when it involves sexual assault with a major public figure is saying, right. no, we're not saying that victims don't have a right to justice. They absolutely, that she's not a real victim, not a real victim, except for these two guys who joined and they're very popular on Twitter. I don't never heard of them before. They exist in the Twitterverse who actually tried to undermine the argument that what had happened would have been wrong if it was true. And this is something that traditionally has been more fringe. This is something you see a lot in the incel kind of community and the male kind of violence, toxic masculinity thing, where they're saying that if this thing happens to you, then it's you're either A, overblowing it, or there's severity of rape is not a gray scale penetrating someone with your fingers isn't rape and you should like act like you were raped or violated. And I've seen that was something that started to really bleed through in the pre like Me Too movement and something I thought Me Too helped successfully push away. 
Mm -hmm. the fact that these people were on this and parroting these ideas, that's when I left, actually. And, you know, we had a pretty basic discussion about the facts around it. You have rightful criticisms about a lot of things, but if we're going to start saying that what the jury said happened is an abuse, then I'm out. To say that being pinned down and being penetrated with fingers is not sexual abuse, it's just something that happens, is not a conversation <laughs> I'm going to lend. Happens through. to those women when they're out of their homes. On the subway, you should. I, somebody mentioned something about that happening on the subway all the time as a defense for why this isn't that bad. And so I, then I looked up the stats on that. And I was like, holy shit, somebody needs to do something about people finger-raping yeah. people on the subways. It happened so bad in Japan that they started having female-only cars. And it's such a phenomenon in Japan that it, when it happened to me once, I broke a guy's fingers. <laughs> I would have done a lot more than break his fingers. But, I was yeah, a professional that, boxer that, you know, at the that's time. Why I'm, I'm always the one who's has mugshots everywhere. But I take zero shit for men like that. But yeah, so it's definitely been more of a fringe thing. And it's a thing that's been bubbling just at the surface, I think, for yeah. over pretty much a decade, almost a full decade. And I think that's something we're going to continue to see. Violence against women. Go forward is the more mainstreaming of the incel culture, which people like Andrew Tate are the self-appointed or anointed champions of that kind of argument. It, it bleeds through other legislative processes like yeah i know if you didn't listen to our andrew tate episode we had to unfortunately fact check our own people about the very very funny jokes that were being made but they were still funny the best thing that i've seen about andrew tate recently aside from the fact that he's being like criminally held in romania on sex trafficking the best thing i've seen recently is when somebody asked an ai whatever artist bought to draw a humanoid a picture of Gollum. It looked exactly like yeah. Andrew Tate. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, gross. Okay. But uh, we'd also see this reflected in the kind of culture, especially in the GOP. Just this year, we had Wyoming, Arkansas, and West Virginia with GOP elected officials. So not just like randos pushing back against bans on child marriage. If you're not aware, the United States has no federal minimum age for marriage in this country. Technically speaking, you could marry a one-year-old. We have no federal minimum age. There has been a lot of pushback recently in states. It's not all liberal states. It's actually quite mixed. You'll have some states that have no minimum age, and then you'll have a conservative one that says Mississippi's, I think, just bumped theirs up to 18. And it's not what you would think the map would look like. But yeah, three GOP-held states actually rallied against bans on child marriage because, of course, raping a child bride isn't rape. So it's this kind of idea of redefining what is actually assault that is not only becoming more common in mainstream conversation, it's also bleeding through in legislative processes by people that are elected to protect children. The ultimate irony. Yeah. So there was a lot of that kind of conversation happening around the E. Jean Carroll case. But the biggest thing to clear up, I think, was that there was no guilty verdict on anything. We don't have guilty verdicts in civil cases. So like when my civil case is resolved, whether they very smartly make a gigantic settlement offer to avoid having DeSantis testify under oath about COVID, or we end up going to trial, they will decide whether or not the state did the things that I said they did. And because they did was I fired them because I reported them for doing those things. Mm -hmm. And it did firing me cause losses, uh, emotional distress and retaliation and all, which obviously that's the, that one's even easy. Yes. But they will have to determine first whether or not the state did the things I said they did. And that's a trial the state does not want to have, especially while DeSantis is planning to, as you mentioned, announce his campaign this week. He thought there'd be fireworks and there was crackers, maybe firecrackers set off somewhere. There's a lot of crackers. Yeah. A lot of crackers. <laughs> yeah, there will be a lot of crackers. Stop. But without a viable al second alternative to Trump, who can poll at least decently, my increasing concern is that we will see Trump either have a heart attack from the stress in prison or whacked or <laughs> there's a lot of things that he's an old man he's very old there are a lot of things that can happen between now and next when is the i guess the primaries over in june although typically they're over before then but they okay. could go i think until maybe even august i'm not sure but we need a number two in there who's not DeSantis. he's a and, number two all right 
What? Huh? He's a number two. And a poop. Sorry, joke. you're just like setting <laughs> them up for me. And I'm, I'm just saying for boob jokes. But uh, no, not boob. That was a poop joke. I know. I said it was a poop joke. Oh, I thought you said boob. I'm like, I'm not. No, I can make boob jokes, but that was it's a poop a joke. Boob. A boob. Uh, Tim Burch has a boob. No, Boobs are far more useful. And if, if you haven't gone through and listened to our many episodes about Tim Burch, you should because he's and you should follow him on Twitter. Oh my God, it's fun. It is very fun. I will say this though, he's not disrespectful to people who criticize him. Hey, and it's just all about the UFOs. So. Yeah, lots of UFOs and some crazy shit. But I will say that I'm a poster child of, I guess, far left politics, which is funny, but that's another thing. And he's never been rude or condescending or disrespectful to me in my many very clearly sarcastic comments to him. And he recently, you might have seen this fellow after the the school shooting in Kentucky. He right? was the only one who was honest. Tennessee. I will say that. He, he was, was honest. He was. He's like, we're just not going to do anything about it. And we're like, not. Well, he didn't say we can't. He said we could, but we're not going to. He said at this point, they're, we're not going to. And I, not that the truth is that they all know that, but he's right. the only one who would just come forward and say, look, we're not going to. The mechanisms that are in place, the way the politics works, we're not going to. Uh, I actually had a lot of respect for him for doing that. He's always, a, he is a wild card. I will say he's an- <laughs> He got dragged hard for that though. He did, but it's true with every single one of the other people, but he was the only one who said it. And he didn't say it to be like, look, I don't care. That's not what he said. He right. said, look. It's awful because this was in Tennessee. And of course, Burchett is a representative from Tennessee. This was after the Covenant school shooting. And he said, look, this is bad. And yeah, we could do some stuff about it, but we're not going to stop asking. And I had to say, I get it. I, Tim is, Tim is Tim, Timmy. He's a rarity. I will say that. He was also the guy who famously, and this is why I fell in love politically with him, who very closely to Matt Gates during the speakership oh, yeah. said the magical, mysterious words into Matt Gates's ears that made him piss his pants. The, state of, or the speaker of, of the House debate, right? Yes, 13th round of voting, I think. And then Matt Gates got up, he went to the bathroom, <laughs> came back and changed his vote. And the look on Matt Gates's face when Tim Burchett said whatever he said to him. I wonder if it was like, I'm going to make the UFOs come for you. I think he said, look, I know about this. And if you do not knock this shit off, we will tell everyone. And he compromised. looked like he shit a brick and changed his vote immediately afterwards. So that's when I started getting interested and started following Tim Burchett. And he knew cameras were around and would see him do it. If you haven't seen that clip, it's hilarious. But he's not someone I would want to mess with or get on my bad side. But okay, so the that's that wrap up. The second item was the troll spree on Twitter recently. So if you have not noticed a flood of new troll accounts, bot accounts, yeah. there is and there's one specifically that keeps the same message like a hundred times on every single post, which is hey, access this account with this like code. It's everywhere. Bitcoin thing too. There's coins always been bad. It, it got really bad after Elon Musk, but I mean everybody most common sense people know that was a scam the whole time. And if they haven't figured it out by now, then they're probably just in on it and scared. But Twitter's new changes for how you can access their APIs and what is freely provided has actually made it incredibly more difficult to track disinformation spread on the website itself. So I've mentioned Chris Boozy a lot. He is the owner of Spoutable which is the best and most viable Twitter alternative for social media that is out there. If you're not on it, join it. I'm there at the same handle I am on Twitter, which is Geo Rebecca. It's, it's a fantastic replacement. And uh, he is a famous, I guess, an analyst who runs this company called Bot Sentinel that tracks disinformation across the internet, especially on Twitter. So we've mentioned several points, their Bot Sentinel reports for the week on which trending topics were most promoted by inauthentic accounts. So accounts that exist to only promote materials of a certain type, like Bitcoin stuff, which Bitcoin is always like half the list of the most inauthentic yeah. promotions, but also a lot of pro-MAGA, pro-Russia stuff. Yep. So the changes that, it, that Musk recently made in the last few months have made it so that data is no longer accessible in the same form. And so it's rendered things like Bot Sentinel that are accountability measures and checks to track disinformation on Twitter inoperable for the time being, right. especially if they begin to charge for API access. Because in order to assess which inauthentic accounts are promoting 
what content you have to have the whole sphere of Twitter accessible. And they're basically saying that they want to charge people for that. So Musk came out, oh, we're going to do open source. We're going to do all this other stuff. And of course, like everything he says, the complete opposite has happened. But that's why we haven't been doing those updates lately is because the, the API is, is no longer in the same format. But I wanted I was going to say the slew of new accounts, I've noticed it too. There's a ton new targeting you. I yeah. know because on Big Mouth Media, they're just like, they. you say Rebecca Jones and it's like a pile on. I'm just like, oh, what the hell? Like, it's really, if you have not put Rebecca Jones on a Twitter post, try it and see what happens. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Like, just try it and see what happens. It doesn't matter who you are. They're going to come after. There's going to be a ton of crap that they put on there. And it's all the same crap. And it's all, all three-year-old national review, daily mail. Yeah. That's, because there's no legitimate news reporting on any of that. Or just shit talking. It's just shit yeah, talking shit sometimes posting. too. And it's designed, as we've mentioned before, to overwhelm people to the point where they don't want to deal with the onslaught just by talking about me. And 100%. It's, yeah, it's social exhaustion. If every time I write a story about somebody or every time I even mention their name or, or retweet something, I all of a sudden get between 10 and a hundred attack accounts posting dis disgusting, vile things yep. about the subject of that. I'm not going to do yep. it anymore. I don't care. So I keep posting, but it is, it's remarkable. I have tens of thousands of followers as well. I don't have, not quite as popular as Rebecca, but I, I have a lot of folks. I post a lot of stuff. There is nothing that compares to yeah. the response and the attempted ratios that I get when yes. I post something about Rebecca Jones. And And I think yes. that these people are actually going to end up getting into a lot of fucking trouble because we know that these are oftentimes part of a paid operation and it costs money to get the blue check now. And so somebody's financing that it's basically promoting these people who pay the aid or whatever $11, depending on what platform I guess you right. use a month to post these things and have them highlighted. So somebody's footing the bill for that. And whoever is doing that is doing so on behalf of a politician or on behalf of the campaign. And that has to legally be reported. And uh, so far it has not. But there's so, so many squirrely things now. Yeah. There's so no. many things with that, the super PACs and really, yeah. Citizens yeah. United. Yes. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Yay. It's hard for a lot of us young people, especially me, because I was in college when Citizen United happened to envision a world of politics where it was not defined like this. But it very much did exist. And it could exist again, because apparently precedent means nothing with this court. But yeah, it used to not be like this, guys. I'm telling you. I yeah, lived through really the bipartisan wanna, era. <laughs> if you really want to maximize your troll input, you really only have to talk about 10 people or things. And this is based off of some of Chris Boozy's work. I am actually one of the highest ranking troll followers that is on all of Twitter. I have a huge platform. It's like 400 and some thousand people. So that's not that surprising. And the person who's behind it wants to be president. But the royal family is the number one. They have more disinformation smear attack campaigns that are funded and organized than any other entity. And a lot of it is not funded and organized. It is the recruits that the funded and organized people have brought in, which mm -hmm. is part of what their effective method is to convince ordinary people to join their bandwagon so they can right. multiply their numbers for free, which is why they use these disinformation tactics. Amber Heard and Johnny Depp is still a huge one. It still pops up as number two. Uh, if you mention them and were supportive of Amber Heard in any way whatsoever, you're going to get flooded. And I've tested this like several, several times. People are like, why is she randomly talking about Ezra Miller was another one. I started talking about Ezra Miller the other day and debunking some of the disinformation around him, which they're them, which is, I apologize for that, is a surprisingly large volume of disinformation around Ezra Miller. Fabricated altercations with police that never happened. Falsely saying that Ezra had been convicted of multiple crimes, which has never happened. All of the talk has created this image that Ezra Miller is a troubled person who might be violent or unhinged in some kind of mental capacity as attacked people. Like these were the impressions I got before being a famous person or observing any of this. And that's actually not true. Just to clear up some of that, Ezra Miller pled guilty to a misdemeanor trespassing one time when he went into his neighbor's house and stole a beer. 
that is the gist of the story of what happened may have been on substance abuses and thought he was in his house. It was the next door neighbor's house, pled guilty to minor trespassing. That's it. That is Ezra Miller's entire criminal history. But if you look at Twitter, you're going to see people accuse him of kidnapping, of sex trafficking, of brutally attacking a fan for no reason. There's Hmm. more truth to that than there is some of the other stuff. But of course, it goes back to a selectively edited video. The more truth there is to something, the more people can get away with lying about it. Because if they can present a single artifact or evidence that is the support of their claim, let's say a police report by police like in the Derek Chauvin case, and uh, which was so accurate, or the Michael Brown case, or some authoritative resource or video or picture that seems like it supports it, then everybody will believe everything they say, or at least more. And so there was a partially edited video of Ezra Miller interacting with a fan in which he does grab this person. Sorry, I really got to, I'm trying to be better, in which Ezra grabs this woman and throws her to the ground. I looked into that. The full video once upon a time was on Twitter and has since been taken down. The fan was actually being very aggressive towards Ezra, touching, possibly groping from what the original video looked like, asking Ezra they wanted to fight and just almost, it seems like an equally unhinged fan grabbing and touching and defended themselves. So that's the kind of thing that's like out there and crazy. And that's not political. I'm sure that some of it is targeted because Ezra is non-binary, uses they, them pronouns, which I've shamelessly messed up several times and I'm trying to be better, but yeah. So it's, everybody does it guys. We just have to work to be better with it, but that is stuff is all over the place. And Mm. I think Ezra is like number three right now, especially with the flash movie coming out. I did test it and wrote about it. And sure enough, Claims of kidnapping were the first one that came up. And I looked into it. I was like, you are completely lying. This is none of this is true, but it's scary. If you just yeah. wanted to tweet about the new Flash movie, and then all of a sudden you get a horde of accounts being like Ezra Miller kidnapped and was sexually abusing these teenagers and blah, blah, blah. And you should read this like tabloid thing about it. And that might make them not go see the movie. Like that is the kind of thing that would make somebody be like, I don't really want to support that. I had no idea. And that's effective. They should right? do that to Marilyn Manson. That's I another think, thing. Well, anyway. That's, yeah. We're not going to get to Marilyn Manson. Um, <laughs> that's like my era anyway. <laughs> no, it's fine too. I remember gaining a lot of respect, unfortunately, for Marilyn Manson in the post-Columbine era. When people, it was, what was it called? When they freaked out in New England and like the early 90s with the devil fever, but there was a name for it, Satan fear or something. There was a term for people being afraid of the satanic cult kind of takeover. I I forget what the technical term was or non-technical term was what we were calling it. But But this was like the tipper gore. They were trying to ban Marilyn Manson. Yes. They blamed music for what happened in Columbine and specifically Marilyn Manson, probably because he was weird. And he is weird, but it turns out like he's also an asshole who is an asshole, but he's also highly intelligent. And I remember seeing bullying for Columbine. And I think that kind of changed my attitude about him to the betterment. And then of course, as time has gone on, we've learned other things. And so I'm like, ah, I used to play Marilyn Manson all the time when I was a radio DJ. (laughs) I used to play it all the time in middle school and high school. Any rate, Ezra Miller usually comes up as like number three or four and right. I'm usually like a good nine or 10. It's been, it's, they look at things that are sustained. So Ezra's more of like a flurry thing. Hmm. Now it fizzled away as events sky down and now the flash is coming out and it's getting some, I think absurdly and probably not able to be realized expectations across the media that they're going to keep doing it. Certain events, obviously anything involving January 6th, the 2020 election. So not, it doesn't necessarily have to be an individual like me or Meghan Markle or Ezra Miller. It can also be in, in hashtags. Yeah. Or a specific two way is two way up there. Not normally because there's usually, I think a strong counterbalance to that. Mm. Um, so we're talking about things that were disproportionately you post just like somebody's name. And then as you mentioned, or if you just said, I support Ezra Miller, or I support Rebecca Jones, or I support Meghan Markle. Just as simple as that, you will get that flood. Of you, you'll get people that will just jump in, yeah. That 
do nothing but spread disinformation about that specific subject. You mentioned the Second Amendment. You're going to get a lot of real people with very strong opinions chiming in on either side. Yeah. And it's not going to, they're not people whose entire account is dedicated, although I'm sure there are those as well, just to spreading disinformation about the Second Amendment itself. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit different. Okay. But January 6th is way, way up there, even higher than the 2020 election and a whole bunch of other topics, which we now cannot monitor as easily because fuck Twitter. But uh, the last subject I wanted to touch on, because we ended up bumping our Andrew Gillum episode back a week because of developments that also meant that we bumped last week's up to this week and still very timely and relevant because it marks the three-year anniversary of when I was fired from the Florida Department of Health. And that was, I think I received the notice on the 18th and on the 20th was when DeSantis attacked me publicly in front of the vice president and falsely accused me of being under active investigation for sexual harassment, which was immediately debunked by the press, but you will still see that shit pop up. He claimed falsely that I was not the architect of the dashboard or our data systems, which is super ironic because I should have had this ready to whip out right now because it is public now. Let's see. Play the Jeopardy music for me. I can't sing. Do, 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 do. Jeopardy. Why did you pick that? Do, 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 All right. Let's see. She's got something. I hope I've got lots of stuff. I have. So if you did not know, on March 13th, Three years to the day, anniversaries seem to be lovely like this. For me, after launching the dashboard, we filed our official whistleblower retaliation case in Leon County, Florida. And I have here the complaint itself. Here is Florida Department of Health and Joseph Ledepo's response, which we just received. And here is Shamiriel Roberson's, the woman who told me to do all the bad things, response right here. The great thing about them is that these two contradict each other all (laughs) kinds of fun ways. And they also contradict sworn affidavits that we got from back in 2020 of Shamira Warberson, she contradicts her own, as well as other people at DOH. But let's go back to that very first press conference. So under active investigation for sexual harassment was completely false. What DeSantis was referring to was a cyber harassment charge that uh, my ex-boyfriend in college pressed against me when I wrote about for a domestic abuse survivor's blog, what it was like to be in an abusive relationship with him. He, in his complaint, said that he did not appreciate that I called, named him, which was his main complaint, and um, called him an abuser of women, even though that's what he is. And he has since like revenge porned me and all kinds of stuff. But that is what DeSantis was referring to. Again, this was something like seven years prior and about an abusive college classmate and the charge of cyber harassment for posting mean things about him on the internet about being in an abusive relationship, which of course all media immediately debunked, but you'll still see the Daily Mail write about it. That article was three years ago. Second big one was that I was not the architect, those were his words, of the COVID dashboard. I was not the principal party responsible for our public data and surveillance systems. Here is the Florida Department's Health official response to our lawsuit saying that in March 2020, Jones created the COVID dashboard where the public could monitor the numbers of positive COVID-19 cases throughout the state. Um, Hold on, let me get to the primary person quote. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And she was the primary party responsible for maintenance and data management for the public data and surveillance systems. Whoops, DeSantis, you messed that one up a little bit. There's a whole lot more that I was asked specifically, me, specifically, individually only, to, according to their affidavit to develop the new data 
four reopening plan with a composite scorecard for each county based on its readiness to reopen. Dr. Blackmore then ordered Jones to create the mock-up of the dashboard design for the new webpage for public view and the scorecards and have it live by the end of the weekend. This new webpage would be publicly available to enable the public and researchers to track the number of cases, infections, hospitalizations statewide during the reopening process. This is the state of Florida's official position. So after that, I had nothing to do with the reopening metrics. Not only did I have something to do with it, I was the person asked to create it. Not only was I the chief architect, I was the principal party responsible for all of that public data. And you know, everything that's highlighted are the things that both parties actually agreed upon, because as I mentioned, the secret, former secretary of health for DOH and the current Florida Department of Health disagree about certain facts of the case, which is super fun. They also admitted that on the morning of April 26, 2020, Jones presented the new website dashboard and county criterion to Roberson, along with Coppola and a representative from the governor's office at the State Emergency Operations Center in Tallahassee, Florida. Now they're admitting that the governor's office was aware of the data malfeasance that was happening, that they were there, that I told my immediate supervisor, Craig Curry, that Roberson asked me to manipulate the data and mislead the public. Curry told Jones that Epi was asked to manipulate the data before Roberson directed Jones to do, but Epi said no as well. So I was not the only one asked. They apparently went to the epidemiologist and asked first. And when they said no, they went to me thinking maybe she doesn't know any better and she'll do it. And of course I did not. Let's see. A lot of this is, all of this highlighted is the agreed upon stuff. And important note, it's the most critical parts of the lawsuit. On May 26th, Curry informed, or sorry, on May 6th, confirmed that Jones was removed from the dashboard and another Allen's analyst was taking over and no reason was provided for her removal. The day after 10 p.m. that night, Blackmore Robertson called Jones asking how the data was published, where it could be accessed and how to hide it without crashing the system. So these are the state's admissions to things that they did. Their affirmative defense here is that none of this is wrong. That is their affirmative defense, that they did this stuff, the stuff they agreed that they did, but that none of it's wrong, which is actually quite reflective of the Inspector General <laughs> report saying that the events occurred as described by the complainant, who was me, but did not constitute a violation or policy or law. And so what they're essentially saying now is that, yeah, that all that happened, we can't deny it because we know she's got the emails, she's got the phone logs. She backed up everything clearly. She's a hoarder of digital information, but uh, it's not wrong. But you it's know? fine, but it's fine. It's fine because it's the government and they can lie to you and that's fine. Well, as long as the, it's good for the politicians. There were a lot of like false things that were bizarre to me that were started by specifically the National Review back in like May 21. Of course, they knew, the governor's office knew the Miami Herald report was coming out because the Miami Herald had reached out for comment, as most legitimate news organizations do, and so they knew that was coming. So they literally ran an article that said the whistleblower who wasn't right before I received legal whistleblower protection to what we say is poison the story. So they preemptively right. tried to cause damage so that when the truth came out, it seemed complicated, dramatic, and people would turn off. But possibly one of the biggest parts of our lawsuit is the fact that I was fired for saying I wanted to file a complaint, which is even more illegal than firing me because of the substance of the complaint. So they actually conceded and agreed that on May 14th, 2020, Jones asked Curry how to file whistleblower complaint regarding Robertson's orders to manipulate data, her reassignment from the dashboard and gross mismanagement. Jones told Curry that she feared being retaliated against and felt compelled to file a whistleblower complaint. And they agree that I was discouraged according, because of course, Corey, my direct supervisor, submitted an affidavit to this effect, discouraged her from filing a whistleblower complaint. He told Jones that her suspicions were likely right, but maybe it would be better to just get an outside job of DOH, outside of DOH. So you just, it's better. These things are going on, these public manipulations, but sounds complicated. Why don't you just get another job is the official response. I think <laughs> at the time, I think for me in the situation that it was Curry always had my back. He was one of the few people that was honest in his affidavits. He did not 
try to cover for DOH or lie about anything overtly. One of the strange rumors that was started at some point was that when I was removed from the dashboard, I crashed it. He put that to bed very immediately. And it's also agreed in DOH's response that on May 7th, the day after I was taken off, the dashboard and its data components crashed and the data files were corrupted by another staff member. Curry immediately called Jones and asked her to repair the website, which she did by manually updating files and fixing corrupted files and the new staff's numerous mistakes. In fact, over the next four days, Corey, Curry asked Jones to repair the dashboard that the new staff continued to crash. And when you have all of this kind of in like in a black and white lawsuit, and it's literally the entire drama around it, clearly politically fabricated story, you would think that this kind of stuff would be the end of it. But of course, trolls are not going to post DOH's response to my lawsuit that agrees with most of my lawsuit. DOH's essential affirmative offense, which there are many, and some of them are boilerplate, as my lawyer explained it. They're going to try to claim that they have sovereign immunity, meaning that a state cannot be sued in court at all, which is not at all weird. But let's see. Isn't that what like the crazy people who think they don't have to pay taxes do? There is some argument to it. This is part of the reason why Andrew Warren's federal court case was thrown out. The judge said, yes, what happened here is a violation of your state constitution. But as a federal judge, I do not no have jurisdiction. jurisdiction to reinstate a politically elected person in the state of Florida. So he went back and he filed in state court. So there is some of that is what they mean by sovereign immunity. But of course, that's not the case with a whistleblower case. And when they're your employer, it's different. Let's see, where is their crazy immunity stuff? Sorry. <laughs> oh, we just do whatever we want here in Florida. That's their legal defense. Yeah, I know, right? It's cool. We're Florida. We're fine. Yeah, I know, right? The governor said it was cool, so we did it. Yeah. <laughs> we call in that Florida, the We're allowed to do whatever state. we want to our employees. Federal laws be damned, right? But we are suing them under a state and a federal law. So that's because there's a First Amendment violation and there's the whistleblower retaliation, which is technically a state statute. So that's the mm. state component. And the First Amendment violation is obviously a federal law. So they can't use the they know they can't. But it's like a list of sure. 19 affirmative defenses where if that one goes and it's the next one, like how we discussed in the civil case before. They actually make the statement that my First Amendment interests do not outweigh my employer's interests which is a very interesting fascinating that, defense. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? yeah, that's a bit of a bizarre one. Your first amendment rights, whoops, do not, shit, no, let's, seat, you know, let's hope you're successful on all of that for our sake. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, what's the point of having a first amendment then? It's she, let's see. Defendant is immune from liability for acts or omissions committed by an employee and not entitled to recovery damages due to sovereign immunity. Mm. And a whole bunch of other crap. But the really funny part to me is that they claim that they didn't do any of this and it's not wrong. But, and this is where you get to the bottom of the affirmative defenses part. If this is all wrong, then we didn't do it. <laughs> it's like not, a Trumpism right there. First of all, we shouldn't be held liable for doing it. That's their first defense. We uh -huh. are immune from any kind of prosecution or civil litigation because of our status as a state agency, which is obviously not going to fly. And even if you say that we are liable, what we did wasn't necessarily wrong. And if it was wrong, then you have to consider these other things. And so this is, you go down the line and then the jury decides, which is what severity level they're going to pick. The state officially said that at no time did plaintiff engage in speech specifically on a matter of public concern as required to cause a state of action under the First Amendment. So here they're actually saying that the pandemic itself is not an issue of public concern. This is in their affirmative defense, which is uh, reflective, I think, of the Ledepo policy about pan the pandemic. But sovereign immunity, again, that they could not know or be reasonably expected to know that their actions violated the constitution uh which is another great one is like, even if it is illegal we didn't know it's illegal so you can't hold us accountable which always works as a defense let's get excuse me officer i didn't know murder was illegal you can't hold me accountable for murder if i didn't know it was illegal that's against the law then yeah whatever that's not gonna work 
and that should they be determined that what they did was wrong, as I described it, and that it caused damage. Then they get to the part of how an award of damages pursuant to chapter 760 must be capped pursuant to the limited waiver of sovereign immunity. So they're again, trying to say, well, when you do award it, there's a cap applicable to state statute. But then also if that doesn't count because there's a federal amendment part here with the first amendment, then you're entitled to a reduction of the damages for amounts received by plaintiff from other sources arising from or out of the state claims and injuries asserted in the complaint. So now they're trying to say that any money I raise on my GoFundMe should be defect. That's essentially what they're going to try to say, taken out of it, even though my first GoFundMe was specifically to run and operate the alternative website that I did. And the second one was specifically to fight the police after the raid on my home. So unless they want to start going down the road where they admit that they raided my home because of this, they can't claim that that money was a direct result. So all sorts of fun. You all the discovery have- on that's going to be really fun too. Yeah, I know. Hey, no, get out of there. Get out of there. What are you doing? Get out of there. You're not allowed there. I have a crazy cat situation. Are you chasing kittens over there? I am. So we have adorable little kittens here because I'm a sucker for strays. But she's they're getting all over the place. But at any rate. Oh, in the three years, I did not think I would still be here dealing with this. My lawyer said when we first started this, look, I want you to buckle up. It's going to be a few years. And when he walked me through that process, what he said was, as soon as we filed the complaint, they have 180 days to issue determination. We cannot legally in the state of Florida because you're a state employee. So therefore, I'm not covered on, under all those other great federal laws for federal employees for whistleblowers during COVID you have to exhaust all procedural remedies. And after they issue that determination, then we sue. It depends on what their determination will be. Either, yes, um, they did these things and it's a violation of state statutes and you'll be reinstated, back pay, and then you sue. Or we couldn't decide and then you sue. Or we determined that this did not happen and we're not giving you the option of being able to sue in court under this statute. That was supposed to be really short, six months tops. And even six months was considered long. We got it two years and two months later Wow! in September of 2022. They right. gave us six months to file, which we did, the deadline of which just happened to coincide with the three-year three anniversary of when I launched the dashboard for the state. So we are now two years and two months behind where we thought we would be at this point. By now... The whole thing was supposed to last this long, not get to trial, which we still are not at three plus years. And of course they stalled and delayed as long as possible. Sure. And uh, didn't want to have to release all these documents. And uh, after all the independent reports, you had the, of course, the COVID data auditor general report, which found that the state undercounted deaths by thousands in the first six months while I was there. You had the inspector general's report that could not determine, prove or disprove two of the most serious allegations, which were that I was told to manipulate data. So they just said, we couldn't prove it or disprove it. We don't know. And then said, yeah, the last one definitely happened, but it's not against the rules to manipulate data in this way, which kind of cleared the path for what happened more recently with Florida and the vaccine data in which the state, Ledepo himself apparently changed the results of internal analysis and data so that he could have a scientific report to support the policy that he had already decided they were going to push. And the actual data proved that that was correct. It was also a direct parallel to what had happened to me. Both times lives were lost because of it. And let me just pause right there because I think that's also important for folks to, to realize that this is a whistleblower case there are certain things that have happened to you. It's upended your life. You are engaging in this lawsuit to, to demonstrate and to make public these things that had happened because you were asked to change data to hide the fact that people were dying and that COVID was affecting people more than the state of Florida wanted to admit because they wanted to reopen. And that meant people died from those policy decisions that were made. 
Yes. I would, essentially, it boils down to the state wanted to pretend that the data and evidence supported reopening businesses because if you've got amnesia, Florida was shut down for over a month during the early part of the pandemic. But they wanted the, to say that the data supported reopening when it did not. Unfortunately, deaths were actually not a part of the reopening metrics. We did not consider whether or not people were dying. We just removed that data from that altogether, which is bizarre. This is another dying is it, it takes time to die. So there was some argument to be made that, yeah. that there's a latency to that. We need to be more focused on testing, even though we weren't doing enough testing, which is part of the emails I have from one of my superior superiors saying, we're not doing enough testing in rural areas to be able to use this metric. And instead of saying, we need to have more robust testing then before we can even consider applying these to any area to reopen, they just said, we'll just exempt them from it. And it continued along that way until we ended up with something that was very quite different than the reality on the ground. But they right. did never, they never considered whether how many people were dying. It was a discussion we had very early and was very early taken out, removed, just deleted. It didn't matter. And yeah, I believe telling people that it was safe to go out in most counties, all but three, I believe, in the state of Florida, when in fact only one county in the entire state met the criteria that we had outlined and within two weeks would have been had to have gone backwards. Mm -hmm. And then opening the entire state up two weeks after that. There was no evidentiary support for that whatsoever. No data to support doing that whatsoever. And uh, I was the one who, apparently the second entity to say no. But I think what happened was, is after Epi said no, the lady who was put in charge, who normally would not be in charge, but because the Surgeon General said in a live press conference that we'd be wearing masks into 2021, oh no, can't have that. They pulled him off of everything. He was the Surgeon General and they put in the Secretary of Health who is not a medical doctor, who did community health outreach and was not qualified. My boss's boss was a veterinarian. So these are the people that were in charge of these things. And it, it was a mess. For most of the time, I felt like we were all doing our best, but that changed very quickly as yeah. it became more politicized at the national level. Yep. And it was not something I was willing to lose my soul over. And I think that's important to remind people because there is, we've talked about it, the trolls and the this and the smears. And now we have Ron DeSantis trying to paint himself like a hero for doing these things. But going all the way back to the beginning of what was happening, it was a government entity lying to the people so they could, so they could make in a money. political way. Yeah. So that, yeah, they could make money and their donors could make money, but they, so they could have this political win. It's even more base than that. It's more base than even just money in pockets. It was money in pockets of some people, but for Ron DeSantis, it was a political win. And he's yeah. been trying to ride that for a while. And he's been pushing away every piece of data that contradicts that narrative that says, oh, yeah. Ron DeSantis was a hero for opening Florida. It doesn't matter how many people died. It doesn't matter how many people suffered or have long-term conditions from getting COVID during this time. That's and DeSantis's viewpoint. That's not necessarily anymore. It was for a while embraced by the mainstream. As soon as Delta hit Florida post-vaccine and Florida lost more people than any other state at any other point in the pandemic, including the very beginning when we didn't even know what the hell it was, that kind of defense of that kind of died away. And you have a couple of stragglers like Jake Tapper, who we've mentioned is very problematic, who supported him during that, partly because he was pushing really hard for to open schools. But that's not really bought into anymore. Nobody says that Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves was heroic for keeping Mississippi open or for demanding that schools be in person in the fall of 2020, because nobody would look at the numbers for what Mississippi experienced and think that is by any measure a success. The same with Alabama, the same yeah. with a bunch of Southern states, Texas as well. Nobody's saying Greg Abbott was a hero for how he did the exact same things during COVID to his state. DeSantis tried to corner the market on this. I didn't listen to science and look, it worked out. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. He, he got a lot from too. like early spring 2021 was the only time anybody bought into that. And then as soon as know. Delta hit, that was it. So I'm further south than you. Let me first of all say that. <laughs> 
it's much... actually Florida's more liberal the further south it gets. Because well, up here on the east coast, we're on well, the west coast. I'm on the west coast. Because here's the thing. It's still actually... more liberal down there than it is up here in Matt Gates country, I promise you. It's just because of how it got cut. But but here's the thing is like people are actually the reason that Ron DeSantis can get away with this narrative, let's put it like that, is because there are a ton of people that say that we're tourism based. Okay. So they shut us down top to bottom. Right. So they're like, yeah, we need to open the bars and the restaurants and the beaches and this and that. And then we got to send our kids to school because where else are we going to put them when we work? Oh, and by the way, scientists are morons. There's this, there is a thing like this and I've seen it. I've seen people talk about it. They're like, oh, we don't actually need experts. It's just me and the Bible. Anti-expertise. Yeah. It's yeah. So that is newer ish in medicine. It used to be more fringe and Peter Hoat says we should get him on the show. I've interviewed him for in the past and it's an amazing interview. I'll, maybe we can add it here too. He was nominated for the Nobel prize in medicine last year. He's the head of tropical medicine and pediatrics at Baylor university um, at the Texas children's hospital. He's a saint in, in every possible regard. He has been very active on the vaccines cause autism disinformation. His daughter, Rachel, has autism. And so back in the 90s, when that was a huge thing, he was on the front lines of fighting that. And so he was naturally on the front lines with this during COVID. And uh, he will talk about how he's watched the, basically the tunnels that funnel this kind of information that used to be considered very ironically affluent white suburban college educated people. Right. Um, all my crunchy Montessori moms yes become <laughs> more like, mainstreamed and how the right. infrastructure was always in place for yep. this to explode and all that like Trump and DeSantis and them did was tap into something that already existed and magnify it 100%. and uh, using an infrastructure that's already existed is the easiest way to spread really an, its own kind of disease and these kittens are freaking out over here and so it's uh, when it's already there in place it's easy now, see, people like me, they're, for an individual, there's a handbook of tools and methods, but there's no, if you were no one before, like I was, like I wasn't even on Twitter. I had an account that I built during, like, I think when Wendy Davis was in Texas and doing her like sneaker standoff in 2014, yeah. that's when I created my Twitter account and like never went back. And uh, so for me, there was no public presence to build off of. There were no relationships that could be tapped into, or any, I was just fresh. And so they had to build an entire network. And that's what they've been doing for the last really two years, two and a half years. Cause this did not in 2020, I didn't deal with this. I never saw the types of disinformation. I had no paid following accounts that were, did nothing but harass me. I had one creepy professor from Florida Atlantic who got banned from Twitter for election conspiracies, who actually used the term first blood in reference to me. It made some very, like, I needed to be, have a, somebody needed to put a dick in my mouth to shut me up, set, like, oh. suicide stuff. Oh, I sure hope she doesn't see all this and go kill herself. Really, but he did it because he's crazy. I didn't have full-time paid operatives until after the raid. That started within weeks of the raid because the raid made me no longer a Florida kind of centric person just delivering COVID yeah. to it. It launched me literally to the international scene. Channel 4 was at my house. It was super bizarre. We had the John Maddox Prizes, an international award, and things like Forbes Text Person of the Year. And I became a national problem for DeSantis. That's yeah. when I got the assigned Pusha, Redfern, the creepy music guy who used to live in California, is now in Florida. Cops just called him like last week, too. Dan Goldwasser. That's yeah. when that started. And it didn't, I didn't have any of that before. I had 65,000 followers and I just delivered data and it was, that was it. And then yeah. the rate changed everything. So it wasn't until I was a big problem that they started actually putting money towards shutting me up. And I think the raid was supposed to do that. <laughs> I think that was the intention. And I think maybe 99% of people who had made it even as far as I had at that point would have still, that would have been the point they backed out. But I guess I'm just not built that way but good and we're grateful we are here that is why we are still fighting these jerks even though i am sick i'm sorry if i sound a little like that and i look a little bit but you know what disinformation doesn't stop because you have a head cold so we don't stop either 
it's always great to talk to you guys. I am discussing this for the first time. So this was your exclusive discussion of what was in these documents, which of course are all available online in whole, unredacted, so that you can read them and see that the state admitted to some of the most horrible things that they did and thinks that there was nothing wrong. It's actually their claim that everything they did was kosher. And if it wasn't, they didn't know. And if they didn't know, you can't hold them responsible. But if you do hold them responsible, you have to deduct from whatever payment based on this other thing. So it's going to be all sorts of fun. We get to put out demands for discovery for email records that the state has refused to give us. We submitted a public records request specifically for DeSantis's inner circle in July of 2021 for the period of April until June, uh, April of 20 to June of 2021. And uh, we were told there were more than 2 million, specifically about me, 2 million responsive records and still have not received them. Now we have subpoena power and I know how to digitize records very easily. So whatever they try to bury us with, we will have all of that accessible. And we're not going to do the newspaper thing where they publish five pages. We'll do all of it for you because Great. that's what I believe in. And that's awesome. what I'm fighting for is for everybody who listens or has followed me to know exactly what happened and who knew what when. And uh, you guys get it first. Yeah. <laughs> that is why you should listen and subscribe to Misinformational, hosted by Big Mouth Media. And thank you so much, Rebecca Jones, for sharing this with us and giving us this scoop and inside look as to your ongoing whistleblower litigation. It's super important for people in the state of Florida and around the country to know what's going on and who Ron DeSantis really is. And so we appreciate that. But definitely check out this episode and all the episodes of Misinformational on Big Mouth Media at BigMouthMediaFL.com. You can subscribe to this show for $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, or you can get all that we have at Big Mouth Media for $19.99 a month, and you get to help keep independent media alive, especially when it's under attack here in Florida, which is where I am. Fortunately, Rebecca is getting out but we uh, but getting out does not mean stopping the fight i'm going to continue to be involved i'm not happy about having to leave home so i'm not going to give up i just can't subject my family they look they've done two tours of florida in service of this state and uh, the moment they decided to come after my child a week after we filed our lawsuit mm. i can sacrifice everything but my children will not be among them and so I'll be fighting from the safety of the state of Maryland. If we have the Casey's DeSantis has her way and she becomes one of the wives of Gilead, we're going to need you to start running boats to get us out of here. So yeah, I will do that. I will have the Underground Railroad for political dissidents out of Florida. But if they make it to the White House, there might not be many places. You're going to have to go to Canada. So right. um, that's where I'll be. But, Let's not get uh, too bleak yet. All right. Yeah, yeah, because as long as there are people here doing this, they can't win. They might win a few battles, but they're not going to win the war. And yeah, we got to keep fighting. For the long haul, we're here for the war. And we'll follow your example. So thanks so much, Rebecca Jones. And I've been your co-host, Dr. Cindy Banier. And we'll see you next time on Misinformational with Rebecca Jones. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining Misinformational with Rebecca Jones, brought to you by Big Mouth Media. Stay connected by visiting misinformational.com. And check out all the great shows and articles on BigMouthMediaFL.com. You can also join the conversation with us on Facebook, Instagram, and the cesspool that's Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to Misinformational wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.